Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. The rise of the automobile age came with the promise that people would be able to drive wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, however they wanted. But the catch has always been, you really can't drive anywhere if you don't have a place to park when you get there. So to make good on that promise, we've had to turn a lot of our cities into parking lots. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Menconi. Well, it now seems that California and a number of Bay Area cities are rethinking a key piece of this decades-old compact with car culture. That piece? Minimum parking requirements. It's the zoning requirements that force developers to include a certain number of parking spots in new constructions. And it's facing pushback in a lot of places all at once. At the start of this year, a new state law went into effect banning such mandates for areas nearby major public transit stops under most circumstances. Meantime, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, and Los Angeles have all made moves in a similar direction over the past few years. And more recently, San Jose dropped its own parking requirements citywide, making it the largest municipality to do so in the country. Why have so many soured on parking requirements? And what will this mean for our changing cityscapes in the decades ahead? Well, today on the program, we'll be taking on those questions with the help of Michael Manville, an urban planning professor at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. Michael Manville, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So just so listeners know where you're coming from on this topic, uh, you've spoken out forcefully against minimum parking requirements. Uh, actually going to read a, a scathing passage from an essay you wrote for The Atlantic a couple of years back. Uh, you said, quote, American urban history is stained with tragic missteps and shameful injustices. So parking requirements are hardly the worst policy cities have tried. But they are notable for how much needless damage they've caused over a long period with few people even noticing, end quote. Uh, so you are definitely a critic, uh, and uh, we're going to get into why that is later on in the program. But uh, to start us out, let's discuss 
why parking requirements were put in place to begin with. Uh, fair to say uh, cities were responding to uh, real concerns from residents at the time, correct? I think that's right. And, and you hinted at it in your introduction, which is that when uh, part of the promise of the car is very much that unlike everything that preceded it, you had this combination of speed and autonomy. You could get where you were going fast uh, and where you wanted to go on your own time through your own route. That did really assume uh, that you would have a place to store the car when you got there. And what happened was that cities started uh, seeing a lot more vehicle ownership. And this would, uh, this would start you know, kind of in the 20s and into the 30s and 40s. Um, and most of the existing buildings didn't have a place to put the car. And so people would park on the street. And so the concern was that as more and more people came into cities, because cities were growing quite rapidly during this time, um, that those street spaces would get congested. And so the, the existing neighbors sort of cried out for help from the city government to say, well, if someone comes in here and they build a store or they build an apartment building or they build just about anything, we need some assurance that quote unquote, our street spaces won't get taken by these newcomers. And the, re the, the city's answer to that, and it sort of started in, you know, Los Angeles is one of the first adopters and then kind of spread across the country was the minimum parking requirement. The idea that you would relieve this pressure on street spaces by requiring developers whenever they built anything to make sure uh, that there was some off-street parking on site with it. Yeah. And uh, let's take a quick look at what that has meant uh, in practice. Uh, looking at the San Jose example, uh, according to the Mercury News, under the uh, parking requirements that were just lifted for the city, uh, new single-family homes needed to include two parking spots, and restaurants uh, had to have a spot for every 40 square feet or for uh, every 2.5 dining room seats. Uh, whichever one added up to more, that's what they had to provide in terms of parking. Um, so those requirements have now been lifted, as we mentioned at the top. And uh, I don't know, I got to say, you know, at, at first blush, if I was doing a first draft of urban planning, those numbers don't sound totally outrageous. What have they added up to in practice? Well, it's... I think one reason why parking requirements have lasted so long is that they do seem intuitive, right? Most people drive um, and most people will drive for the foreseeable future in most places. And so it's not crazy to think, oh, of course we need places to park. But one of those numbers I want to, I want to grab that you just mentioned, which is that uh, if a restaurant requires a parking space for every 40 square feet, um, an off-street parking space, when you factor in that you don't just, you can't just build the space, you also need uh, you know, a, a pathway for the car to get to it. The average size of an off-street parking space is between 350 and 400 square feet, right? Which means that by law, a restaurant in San Jose had to devote over 10 times as much space to parking cars as to places where you could actually sit down and eat. Um, and that, well, even if you don't think that's sort of uh, out of hand, on that one parcel, if you multiply that over hundreds of thousands of parcels, and and you know for not just restaurants but similar laws that get applied to single-family homes or apartment buildings and so forth, what you get is a slow transformation of your landscape into something that really is designed around driving, um, and and in and in being designed around driving. Uh, it does two other things. 
One is that it makes it a lot harder to move around in any other way, right? It becomes, you're pushing destinations apart, you're putting in more curb cuts into sidewalks. Uh, and what those things do is they make it harder for transit to service areas. They make it less safe and less pleasant to walk. Anyone who has walked alongside a surface parking lot uh, and then, you know, uh, anyone who's walked alongside a surface parking lot knows it's not the most pleasant thing in the world. And, and the second thing is that it makes it much more expensive um, to build all the things that actually make the city worthwhile, right? That when you go to a restaurant, yes, it's nice to have a place to park, but really you want to be able to sit down and eat. Um, and so we, because we got more parking on every parcel, we got a, less of a everything else. And it's the everything else that really makes our cities worthwhile. Speaking once again to Michael Manville, urban planning professor at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. Let's pick up on that point that it makes developments more uh, expensive, because if we're looking at this recent wave of reform measures pulling back these uh, minimum parking requirements, a big way that that reform has been sold is with the promise that with uh, without these requirements, it will be less expensive to make new housing developments, uh, essentially pointing out that requiring developers to include this uh, level of parking is really just another way of uh, passing on that uh, that price, that extra expense to renters and homeowners. Uh, talk about that aspect of things. Uh, how, how much has uh, these parking requirements affected the housing market? Well, they, they can affect the housing market very dramatically. And it's important to be a little bit nuanced here, right? Um, in a the typical single family home in a suburban part of California is probably going to come with a driveway and a garage, no matter what the requirement is. That's just the way the market is. And so uh, the fact that San Jose required two parking spaces with a single family home um, probably didn't change the character of the city's single family homes that much. Uh, but if you get into more urban areas where we see, where we hope to see sort of infill development, small apartment buildings, townhomes, things like that, the parking requirement becomes very consequential. And it's not so much that the cost of the parking space gets passed on to the tenant, although certainly that happens, right? If you, it, it's, it's definitely important to emphasize that if you require all buildings to come with a parking space, what you are one thing that you are doing inadvertently or not is saying that you can't build housing for people who don't own cars, right? And people who don't own cars tend to be uh, lower income and housing for people who don't own cars tends to be less expensive. So that that is a factor. But the real thing that happens is that parking um, is either going to cost a developer a lot of money if they put it underground, or it's going to cost them a lot of space if they try and uh, do it on the first floor or do it in a surface lot. And what that means is that the typical parcel just can't fit as much housing. Mm. Uh, and that on some parcels, a housing development just doesn't pencil out at all, mm. right? That you could you could be looking at a zoning law and it could say, um, this parcel can hold 10 units of housing. But then when the developer goes to, to actually examine it, they find that because of the parking requirement, they could really only build seven units of housing. And so at best, you get three less units of housing, and that doesn't sound like much, but again, multiply that over decades and hundreds of thousands of parcels, and you get a pretty sizable housing shortage. And at worst, what happens is the developer looks at it and says, you know what, this just doesn't pencil at all, and the lot stays vacant. And so these, the parking requirements, they become, in many instances, what we call the binding constraint on development. 
that no, no matter all the other rules on the books that say you could have 12 units or 10 units or whatever, because of the parking requirement, you can really only have five, you can really only have four, sometimes you can have none. Yeah. Uh, speaking once again to Michael Manville with UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we're talking about minimum parking requirements and why so many cities are rethinking them, moving away from them, and honestly trying to have a little bit less parking in their towns. Uh, we just heard some of the arguments against minimum parking requirements, but uh, now we're going to talk about how this is all playing out in practice. Uh, as we've mentioned, we've just recently seen action at the state level and in San Jose to limit these mandates. So let's turn now to San Jose and uh, one of the people who's been pushing for change in that city. Uh, welcoming on now Alex Shore. He's the co-founder and executive director of the community nonprofit Catalyze SV, also the chair of San Jose's Housing and Community Development Commission, though he's not speaking on their behalf today. Uh, Alex Shore, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks, Keith. A pleasure to be with you and Professor Manville. Uh, so again, hoping to make uh, this all a little bit more concrete with the example of San Jose. Uh, give us the context here. Uh, San Jose, in a lot of ways, is the Northern California poster child for suburban stra- sprawl. You know, you, you, you go to San Jose and right. you see single family homes, you see strip malls as, as far as the eye can see. Uh, you know, even, even in the downtown core, a decent chunk of that is just parking lots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did we get here? What role has parking minimums played in how San Jose has developed? Yeah, well, I'm a first of all, I'm a suburban kid who grew up in a suburb of San Jose. So this was my norm for many years. Mm. And then and I think it's always good to to speak personally. I, I went off to college in Nashville, Tennessee. I moved to Washington, D.C., eventually New York, L.A., San Francisco before I came back home to San Jose. And I was crestfallen, Keith, by seeing the very conditions you described. A downtown of the 10th largest city in the country should not in any circumstance be littered with single use, single story parking lots. And that's what I saw in our downtown. And it just made me concerned for my generation and the next generations that increasingly value different ways of getting around, that are scraping and clawing to pay for housing, that want to walk amidst their downtown, want to take public transit to their downtown. And all that space that we use for parking, as Professor Manville said, takes away from the ability to do things like that and to have these other uses that, in my opinion, are higher priorities. So for organizations like Catalyze SV, we have many, many members who feel very passionately about a better way to develop, particularly in our urban core, particularly around transit. And so that's why we started advocating for this this change that actually has been in the making for 65 years as our city planning staff informed the community and the council during this debate over the last two or three years. These are policies that have been in the book since the mid 60s. So uh, it's high time that they be reconsidered um, so that we have a different way of living and can offer more options for people on, on how to make San Jose livable. Well, and it is, I just want to highlight for a second how dramatic it is that we are seeing this change again, San Jose, 
the largest city yet to roll back these uh, minimum parking requirements citywide in the country. Uh, how dramatic it is that this is happening in San Jose, because, yeah. uh, uh, well, just to drive this point home, I'm going to reference the Mercury News one more time. Uh, according to a survey conducted by that news organization, San Jose has historically required businesses and developers to provide more on-site parking than any other major city in California. So this is a huge turnaround, uh, yeah. uh, uh, very meaningful that it's happening in San Jose. And again, you say that this is something that's been in the works for uh, several years. What do you think has been the turning point? Why Why is this getting so much attention now? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Keith. I, I think city staff have been very forward thinking uh, and have been working diligently. I think they were savvy and providing things like study sessions for the city council in August of, I believe it was 2021, uh, on this topic so that the council could dig in. Uh, frankly speaking, I mean, I think Professor Manville and so many other experts on parking, the research and the data is there. And the story is one that you can tell about how to create different ways of living and the stranglehold that parking has on that ability. So and then I think there is a political calculation, even though we have the Brown Act in California, which means public officials don't make these decisions as a majority behind closed doors. There were some really forward thinking council members and the group of advocates, including Greenbelt Alliance and, and many, many others that worked on this issue. We weren't sure, Keith, what the council was going to do until they took the vote in June of 2022 and gave the initial blessing to move forward with changing this, this requirement. So they had a few options on the table, some of which were not as forward thinking and far reaching, uh, but they went pretty much all the way on the reforms. And so I think it's a, a recognition that, and it actually brings together some old school environmentalists. I mean, part of the policy of cities like San Jose for decades has been, we don't want to build in the hillsides and the hinterlands. And if you don't build in the hillsides and the hinterlands, and you don't allow infill housing in existing neighborhoods along commercial or transit corridors, you're not going to get any housing or any development in a city. So I think it is the, the grand bargain that, uh, say, younger pro-housing advocates and say older environmentalists make together to say, hey, if we're gonna develop anything, we have to do it here in the urban core and we have to allow multi-story housing and we have to minimize the amount of car parking. I think the other really important part about this policy, the last point I'll make, at least for the moment, is that this still allows developers to build parking. It is merely eliminating a mandate a requirement that forces them to build more than they need. And I think when community members realize that, when they realize, well, gosh, they're still going to build parking spaces, but maybe just not quite as many, or maybe they're going to build some of those parking spaces that can be adapted into the future to a coffee shop or a place for more homes, uh, that that becomes more palatable. All right. So a lot of big changes as you're talking about there. Just a second, we're going to bring in some of the I think concern about these changes that we've heard from some residents. I'm uh, going to touch on that in just a second. Real quick, though, going to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, uh, with California stepping back from minimum parking requirements, we're considering what our cities could look like 
if they catered less to cars. Joining us for that conversation, hearing from Michael Manville, an urban planning professor at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. Also speaking with Alex Shore. He's the co-founder and executive director of the community nonprofit Catalyze SV. He's also written about parking requirement issues uh, for the Mineta Transportation Institute. So going to put different versions of these questions to both of you. But uh, starting with you, Alex Shore, when the repeal of these parking requirements was discussed. I I think some of the biggest concerns that we heard came from uh, the most densely occupied neighborhoods, especially in San Jose's uh, east side, where oftentimes large families are living under one roof. All those people have a lot of cars. uh, So there's already a huge amount of strain on the curb space out there. Uh, And the worry is that without the requirements uh, for parking, there's going to be even more pressure for these neighborhoods. And of course, a lot of these folks uh, rely on their cars to get to work or, you know, maybe that car is a part of uh, their business, uh, part of how they carry out their business. So not a trivial matter for a lot of these folks. Uh, is is there a concern? You know, we're, we're talking about gradual change of the cityscape over years, but potentially decades. We're talking about new developments. But, you know, in, in the meantime, is there a concern that folks in these neighborhoods Uh, For them, things could get worse before they get better? I think it's an absolutely fair concern. I know when I lived in Los Angeles, I spent sometimes five, 10 minutes driving around my neighborhood looking for a parking spot. And I think part of the reason that that occurs in San Jose, and I think when the city staff presented this policy to the council, they did a really good job of explaining, hey, part of the reason it's so hard to find parking in some neighborhoods is because at least in San Jose, where there's such a housing crunch, there's more people than perhaps should be living in single family homes that are than are attended in those neighborhoods and homes. And so part of allowing these mandates to be eliminated allows more housing to be built which allows folks to, if you have say six people in a two bedroom home to, that allows them to have the housing they need to live in other parts of town so that those neighborhoods don't get so full of parking. I, I think the other thing that I like to talk about in this discussion is the concept of induced demand, which economists and transportation planners say is if you provide more of a good, people will use it. And to put that in common terms, a lot of times when I talk to my fellow community members, I'll say, yeah, who's been stuck in congestion on a highway during rush hour and said, gosh, I wish there was just one more lane of traffic. If we could just expand this highway, it would be great. And sometimes we have done that many, many years in many, many places in this country, costing us many, many millions of dollars. And as soon as those highway lanes are open, more cars fill into them. And before you know it, they're as if not more packed than they were before. And the very same principle in my mind applies to parking and developments. If the number one thing you don't want is more traffic and congestion, then the number one thing you shouldn't do is build more cars for more parking to encourage that behavior. Hmm. And I remember the the big effect it had on me when I moved into my first apartment in San Jose And that developer handed me a transit pass and said, hey, welcome to the building here. Now you can ride transit for free. And those are the kinds of decisions we can make in government and in the development world to re-engineer a better future in which maybe the car isn't 
dictator anymore as it's been for so long in our state, but it's one among many of the royal family of how we get around Mm. because keeping the car, it really hasn't been the king in California. It's been the dictator and it's time that we change that. And that's part of what these policies do. All right. Well, I'm going to put a similar question to Michael Manville. Uh, So we just heard about the carrot approach to getting drivers out of their cars, you know, uh, giving them a a good reason to want to take public transportation. But I I, I suspect a a lot of drivers might feel like they're also facing the stick at the moment. You know, I I, I do get the sense listening to a lot of urban planners that... uh, they, they really do want to apply some amount of pressure, uh, find some ways to make driving the less appealing option. So uh, I, I guess my question is, you know, is it fair to see uh, that as part of what's going on here? You know, potentially making parking more scarce and therefore uh, making owning a car a, a, a little worse. Is, is is that a fair way to look at this? I wouldn't go quite that far. Um, what I would say is that it is probably important for in the aggregate, uh, California is to drive less than they do, right? Um, because, you know, we have all these sustainability goals that we want to hit. We're worried about carbon emissions. We're worried or we should be worried about local air pollution and what it does, uh, especially to some of our more vulnerable neighbors. Um, but what we're talking about when we talk about repealing minimum parking requirements is not uh, sort of taking a carrot I was sort of taking a stick and trying to sort of beat the cars away, right? And I, I think Alex made this point. And it's worth reiterating because it's a common misunderstanding. All this says is that the government can't tell you exactly how much parking needs to be in a place and exactly where it needs to be, right? The, a world where everyone drives everywhere is perfectly compatible with a world of no parking requirements. Because if everyone absolutely wants to drive everywhere and developers want to make money, they're going to build parking, right? This this really isn't a ban on parking. It's not someone coming to tell you uh, that you can't have two cars or things like that. It's just saying that we can no longer write into the law the quantity of parking that has to come with every single thing we build. And so to your to your, the, to the question you posed uh, to Alex, I mean, I think uh, because it is related, you know, one of the most important things cities can do if they are worried that, you know, we're suddenly going to have this rash of, um, of, no, of, of buildings going up with absolutely no parking at all. And let me be clear, I don't think that's going to happen, right, again, you know, this transition is going to be slow. Developers uh, are, are quite likely to build less parking. Um, and some developers in California will build buildings with zero parking. But I think that, you know, most of them understand that a lot of people want to drive and they're going to build some parking. But if cities are worried, one of the most important things they can do is go back and fix the error they made way back in the 1920s, 1930s, when this concern first came up about what to do about the curb, right? The error they made was they looked at that curb and worried that it was going to get congested and decided decided to devote more private land to off-street parking. But the way to make sure you can find space at the curb is to actually actively manage your curb spaces, 
right? And that can be through permits, it can be through meters, it can be through all sorts of different measures, but our local governments have really dropped the ball in managing this incredibly valuable land they have, which is their curbs. Um, and we've let them drop the ball by allowing them to use this sort of brute force mandate that all of our private land is going to hold off street parking. And so I think a combination of active, wise management by talented local government planners of the curb, alongside the fact that like most people who do build things understand that if they wanna sell those buildings, they have to have some parking, um, is going to take care a lot of a lot of these problems on their own. You know, is it is it appropriate that we remove what is essentially a gigantic subsidy to owning and operating a car? Yeah. And then that's what this is doing. Um, but is removing a gigantic subsidy the equivalent to sort of declaring a war on cars? No. Right. It's just sort of ending the free ride that's happened for a long time. Well, only have about uh, 30 seconds or so left. But, um, Michael Manville, since you raised the point of what sort of impact this is all going to have, uh, tell us in, in, in a minute or less how big of a change these reforms uh, could have on cityscapes. As you mentioned, a, a lot of developers are likely still going to include parking spots, uh, whether or not they're required to. Uh, how, how pivotal is this moment? How different will our cities look 10 years from now? Uh, well, you know, it, it's hard to say because lots of different things influence how much development happens, right? Right now we have very high interest rates, so I don't expect much to be built anytime soon. Mm. But the, the short answer is you're going to see um, a lot of new types of building uh, that right now are just almost completely, or with parking requirements, are almost completely infeasible. You're a lot more fourplexes and townhouses and so forth. Um, and then you'll see a lot more experimentation. Right, that the typical developer won't try and build uh, a zero parking building, but some will, and and some people will like it, and it will, uh, and we will end up with cities as a result of that that satisfy a more diverse array of needs, right, and and it will just sort of continue to flourish from there. All right. Well, early days on all of this, and we're going to see how it turns out. But we thank both of you for shedding some light on these big changes uh, for this program. Going to round things out here. We have been speaking to Michael Manville, an urban planning professor at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. Michael Manville, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was great. Also spoke with Alex Shore, the co-founder and executive director of the community nonprofit Catalyze SV. Alex Shore, thanks to you as well. Thanks, Keith. What a treat to spend this much time talking about reform. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of airtime for urban planning on the radio today, but it was a lot of fun. Thanks to both of you. Uh, and a special thank you to the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University for providing their uh, expertise and preparing for this program. And uh, thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) 
Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.